turn your Bibles, if you will, to two openings of Scripture tonight, John chapter 14 and then uh, Mark chapter 16. I want to teach on one of my favorite subjects, and that's faith in the name of Jesus. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is the, um, uh, the occasion of the Last Supper. And John gives us some great details about the things that Jesus spoke to them about. He gave them uh, a lot of information about the time to come following his resurrection, uh, how things were going to be different, what they could expect, specifically the Spirit of God and, and uh, in his work. We have more information about the work of the Holy Spirit during these, uh, uh, this discourse that John gives us a record of at the Last Supper than any other place in the four Gospels. Uh, Jesus is speaking to them. Uh, Judas has already left. Jesus gave him the, the best part of the, the, the meal. He the, dipped the sop in the, in the wine and, and uh, Judas left. And so he's just talking to, to his followers, those that truly believed in him. And in chapter 14, uh, Philip says something about, um, ask Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus is trying to explain to them that you don't understand. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip is, is thinking, from a natural standpoint, like so many of us do, we want to see something that proves to us that it's God. But Jesus is saying it's not what you see outwardly, it's that which works from within. And this is the, the platform, the, the starting point that he begins to talk about the Holy Ghost and the work of the Spirit of God in the church in the last days, or in, in, in the New Covenant. Certainly it's true of the last days, but it was true of the early days as well. So he, uh, let's pick up in verse 12, John chapter 14, verse 12. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, if we just stopped right there and took that verse out of context and said, well, okay, I believe in Jesus. Anybody that's saved believes in Jesus. You can't get saved without believing in Jesus. But is everybody that believes in Jesus doing the works? Pretty obvious that they're not. So he's got to be talking about something other than just believing in Jesus from a standpoint of being forgiven for your sins. He's got to be talking about something more than just believing in what we know of in the modern day church as salvation. Doesn't he? Otherwise, the works that Jesus did and even greater works would be an automatic. But they're not. So what does he mean when he says, he that believeth on me? Well, verse 13 really tells us. He said, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Now, if he's talking about the use of his name, then he's got to be talking about believing on him in verse 12 as being believing in his name. Not just believing in Jesus as Savior. Thank God we can believe in Jesus as Savior. Believing Jesus came to the earth and died for your sins can get you saved. It can get you an entrance into heaven. But that doesn't mean that you're going to do any of the works of Jesus while he was here. But if you go a step further and recognize that Jesus not only came to die for our sins to redeem us from spiritual death, but also to give us his name so that we could do the same works that he did, now you're on target. And that's what he's trying to describe to his disciples. Now, the reason that he's doing this is because Philip says, we want to see the Father. He's saying, you don't need to see the Father. What you need is the Holy Ghost on the inside of you. What you need is to be born again. What you need is what will come as a result of my resurrection so that you can believe in my name. That's how you see the Father. Seeing God at work is a, has a direct correlation, is directly proportionate to faith in the name of Jesus. To whatever degree you believe in the name of Jesus, that's the degree that you're going to see God work in your life. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, or literally believeth on my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works. Now, I'm not sure what the greater works are. To be honest with you, I focus on just doing the works. If I ever get that down, then I'll start concerning myself with greater works. I don't know what greater works you can do than raising the dead, and Jesus did that. What greater works can there be? Now, some people try to get real religious on you and spiritual and spiritualize this stuff and say, well, it's a greater work to get people saved. But I notice the people that say that are just trying to get people saved and not doing the same works that Jesus did. They try to focus on, well, we're doing the greater works because Jesus himself couldn't get anybody saved because he hadn't yet been to the cross and raised from the dead. Well, the fact is Jesus did get people saved. He got his, the 120 saved, or he got his disciples, excuse me, he got his disciples saved in John chapter 20. He got them saved, so we could even say the salvation was part of the works of Jesus. They weren't his works at the time that he said this, but it was certainly his works before he went to the Father once and for all. So he's talking about doing the same kind of stuff he did. He's talking about doing signs and wonders and miracles. He's talking about healing the sick. He's talking about delivering people that were oppressed of the devil. He's talking about setting people free, along with bringing people into the new birth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or believeth on my name, The works that I do shall he do also. Notice he didn't say you might do them. He said, if you believe in his name, you will do them. Now, as I said, it's directly proportionate to faith in the name of Jesus. So if you're not doing the works of Jesus, you should check up on yourself to see where your faith is in his name. What degree you really believe in his name. Now, you can look at this from a condemnation side, and the devil will certainly try to help you with that. Well, you're not doing the works of Jesus. You must not believe in his name at all. But the real thing that Jesus is trying to get across to us, and what should be a real blessing to us, is all we have to do is believe in his name, and we can do what he did. That's it. Oh, but it's so hard to believe in the name of Jesus. No, it isn't. You're believing something now. Everybody does. Even people that are going to hell believe in something. All you have to do is direct your faith to the right thing. That's easy. Piece of cake. So Jesus said, he that believeth on me, or literally in my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. I would rest my case by saying, if Peter can do it, anybody can do it. Because we'll see as we look in the book of Acts that the one thing the religious leaders took notice of, of Peter and John, specifically Peter because he was a spokesman, is that they were ignorant and unlearned men. Now, folks, I don't know anybody that can't qualify for that. I take great comfort in that. I'm not sure we'll get out of verse 12 yet. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or in my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. So he's got to be talking about the new covenant then. He's got to be talking about the church age. This is going to be the case when he goes to the Father. Verse 13. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice he didn't say, and and whatsoever you ask, if it's according to my will. Now, certainly I'm not suggesting that we pray things or, or ask, of thing, ask for things that are against the will of God. But my point is, the church puts such an emphasis on, well, if it's God's will, like you're never going to know. 
Well, it's easy to know the will of God. In this context, if Jesus did it, you know it's the will of God. So we'd have to conclude that healing has got to be the will of God because Jesus did it. And he said we'd do the same works if we believed in his name. It's got to include healing. It's got to include miracles. It's got to include setting people free, delivering them. Right? Because he's talking about doing the same works. Now he's telling us in verse 13 how to do the works. It's not a matter of if we're going to do them. That's determined by belief in his name. Now he's telling us how we're going to do them. And he said, whatsoever you shall ask. Now, the word ask is really a poor translation in the English because if you look it up in the Greek, it means to call for or require or demand. Now, when you use the word demand, a lot of people get the wrong idea. They think, yeah, well, we're making a demand of God and, and, and we don't, don't want to do that. We want to be humble and stuff like that. But that's not what the meaning of the word is. It used to be on, on checks. Uh, you know, when you get your personal checks, it used to say pay to the order of or pay to the demand of. Now you don't find that much anymore unless they're real fancy checks and, you know, the retro stuff or whatever. But it used to say pay to the demand of. The contract that you have with your bank for a checking account is that whenever you write a check, you're making a demand on your account. They agree to hold your money and they won't take much of it. You know, they'll, they'll make you pay for them to hold your money. So they get a cut and in, in return, they will deliver the money or transfer the money to whoever puts a demand on your account. And the way that we know for certain that the demand is made is by your signature on the check. So when you give somebody a check, you're placing a demand on your account. They issue that demand by depositing that check and then your bank has to pay their bank. Now, Does anybody have to have a bad attitude about doing any of that for it to work? See, when you talk about demanding in this context, people think, oh, you're demanding of God. That's arrogance. That's insolence. You can't do that. Well, folks, you make a demand every time you write a check on your checking account. You don't have to have a bad attitude to get it to work. It has nothing to do with attitude. It has to do with contract. It has to do with the agreement that you signed in agreement with the bank. They signed, you signed, everybody knows what the terms are, right? Right? Jesus is talking about a contract. He's saying, whosoever believes in my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works shall he do because I go unto my Father. And here's how it works. Here's the contract. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or make a demand on in my name, that will I do. He didn't say I would consider it. He didn't say I'd talk it over with the Father to see if it's okay. He said in the strongest possible terms, that will I do. Now you tell me, why aren't the works of Jesus being done? He falling down on his end? Is he not doing what he said he will do? Nobody's going to convince me of that. Because if that's the case, then the Bible's a lie. And we might as well just party on until the end of life. Because there is no salvation, there is no redemption, there is no Jesus, there is no Christianity. So I'm not convinced of that. Nobody could ever convince me of that. God does his part. He holds up his end of things. Well, when Jesus said that all we have to do is first believe on his name, and secondly, because we believe on his name, call for, require, or place a demand on that name, for him to do something, then it tells me that there's a problem either with faith in his name or the demands being placed on it. 
what else could it be? Are you with me? I'm not looking for you to say amen all the time, but I just need a nod every now and then to know that you understand what I'm saying. A lot of times I think I'm being clear and I'm not, so that's all I'm looking for. That's what it's got to be, doesn't it? If Jesus is doing what he said he would do, if he hasn't changed his mind, if he hadn't changed the terms of the contract, then the problem has got to be either a lack of faith in his name or we're not making demands on the name if the works of Jesus are not being done. It's the only possibility. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do. That will I do. That will I do. Can he say it any stronger than that? Is there any language? Are there any words in the English language that he could use that would be any clearer? You place a demand, I'll do it. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do you realize the last part of the verse is, 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 in my opinion, is key? Because what Jesus is saying is, you bring God glory when you put a demand on my name. Now, how much of the church world wants to glorify God? Everybody says they do. Even people that don't believe in doing the works of Jesus. Even people that believe that healing has been done away with. There is no baptism of the Holy Ghost today. There is no speaking in tongues. There are no spiritual gifts. There is no power. Even people that say that all that stuff's been done away with and your job is just to hang on and suffer till the end. Everybody in the Christian world wants to glorify God. Who would say, no, I don't want to do that? Nobody would ever make that confession or make that statement. Everybody wants to glorify God. Jesus tells you how to do it. Put a demand on his name. Give him something to make good so that supernatural works can take place, the same works that he did when he was here on the earth, because that's how you glorify God. See, most people in the church world think glorifying God just means suffering, putting up with some terrible thing and just holding out till the end. Jesus said the way you glorify God is to put a demand on his name to set people free. Mark chapter 16. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. He's talking to his disciples, giving them last minute instructions. And he said unto them, verse 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, folks, in verse 16, baptized does not mean water baptism. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6 that there is a doctrine of baptisms. One of the foundational things, Christianity 101, is to understand the doctrine of baptisms along with other things, along with other doctrines. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, in other words, uh, for example, and some other things that he lists there. The doctrine of baptisms is something you're supposed to have as a clear and basic understanding. It's kindergarten stuff. Yet so much of the church has fought wars over water baptism. Now, it says doctrine of baptisms, plural. What does that mean? That means there are a lot of different kind of baptisms. There's a baptism in the Holy Ghost. We know of that one. That's when the, in Acts chapter 2, that's when they began to speak with other tongues. That's available to us today. There's a, there's a water baptism. We know that. And there's a doctrine of baptism that he's talking about here that's being baptized into Christ. It says, as many as are baptized into Christ are one body. What does that mean? That means being baptized into Christ is the same thing as being saved. Because that's the only way you become one in Christ. Are you with me? 
So here where he says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If this meant water baptism, then that would mean water baptism is a prerequisite to salvation. Well, then why did Paul say he didn't baptize many people? He only lists a couple, only mentions that he baptized a few, and then lists the few very, the very few people that he did baptize. Well, why didn't he make it a big deal? Because to the Gentiles, water baptism was not a big deal. It was to the Jews. But to the Gentiles, water baptism was not a big deal. So Paul didn't make a big deal about it. Now, it's an important thing. There's no question about that. It's an important thing. It's important not for other people. It's important for you. Because if you do something publicly to declare your allegiance to Jesus, which is what water baptism is, it's a sign of going into the water, uh, dying unto yourself, and being raised up just like Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a sign of us coming into that which Jesus did for us. But water baptism is just an outward sign of something that's already happened. For example, if somebody got baptized but they didn't really get saved, water baptism does them nothing, does them no good at all. They just got dumped. Same thing as taking a quick bath. Maybe not very effectively either. So in and of itself, water baptism doesn't mean anything. It's only when it's an outward sign of the, of the salvation that you've received by making Jesus the Lord of your life, that's when it counts. And it counts because it doesn't mean something to the world. It means something to you. Now, in some cultures, it's a death sentence. Because if in, in a Muslim culture, for example, you get baptized in the name of Jesus, you're asking people to kill you. And so it's a very serious thing. In our American culture, it's kind of like everything's based on comfort, so who cares, you know, in a lot of people's attitude and that type of thing. I think it's an important thing just because of the difference that it makes in the individual. But that's just part of the doctrine of baptisms. So he's not talking about in verse 16, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. He that believes and is baptized. In other words, the same thing Paul said in Romans chapter 10, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as your Lord. Two parts, believe and confess. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about believe and confess because confessing Jesus as your Lord is the only way you can be baptized into Christ. You see what he's saying? Okay, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized into Christ shall be saved. <clears throat> but he that believeth not shall be damned. Well, if you don't believe, you're certainly not going to get baptized into Christ. Right? And these signs shall follow them that believe. Now, I, I trust you understand that the translators are the ones that uh, that made the verse divisions, the chapter divisions, and the punctuation. If you look at the original text in the Greek... Uh, New Testament was written originally in Greek. The Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. If you look at the Greek New Testament text, the original text, it's all what we would call uppercase letters. It's like it's all capital letters without any punctuation, without any division or, or whatever. So the translators took this and divided it into verse for easy ease of reference, chapters based on their understanding of where the subjects would change or the thoughts would change and that type of thing, and punctuation based on what they understood that he was saying. Well, for the most part, the translators did a great job. I have no, have no complaints. There are some things that they, that they missed on. But you need to understand that since there was no punctuation in the original, if you have an understanding of God or what Jesus is saying that's greater than the understanding that the translators had in their day, and everything is progressive revelation, folks. We know more today than they knew a hundred years ago. They knew more a hundred years ago than they did a hundred years before that. Because the things of the, the things of God are always progressive in their revelation. So when we see the punctuation, you've got just as much a right to put a period or a comma wherever you think it's appropriate as the translators do. 
based on the, the, uh, your understanding of Scripture. So where the punctuation is here in, in uh, what is it, verse 17? The punctuation is really wrong here, in my opinion. You, you judge this for yourself, and don't take this for gospel. This is not something Jesus told me. The punctuation is wrong. I don't think Jesus cares about punctuation. He cares about understanding. But for my understanding, the punctuation is wrong. And here's where I think it ought to be. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name, comma, or colon, whichever is appropriate. I don't know my English that well. (laughs) You were really unclear on that, weren't you? And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Why should it be there? Because he's talking about believing in his name. How do we know that? Because we just read in John chapter 12, John chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. Whatsoever you call for require in my name, that will I do. He that believeth on me or believeth on my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do. Well, this includes part of the works of Jesus here on the earth. How are we going to do that? By believing on his name. So I take John 14, verses 12 and 13, to understand that I can change the punctuation here to make it more scripturally accurate. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Well, what signs are going to follow those that believe in your name, Jesus? Number one, they shall cast out devils. Well, that was the work of Jesus here on the earth. Number two, they shall speak with new tongues. Well, he didn't do that, but the Bible tells us that that's unique to the New Testament or the New Covenant dispensation, the church dispensation. So that would fit too then. Number three, they shall take up serpents. The word take up means lift as an anchor to sail away. In other words, it's talking about setting people free from that which represents the devil, which is a serpent. It's not talking about handling snakes. They shall lift the oppression of the enemy off of others. Talking about authority over the devil. Number four, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. It's talking about divine protection. Well, Jesus was certainly divinely protected when he was here on the earth. He walked through the middle of the crowd when they wanted to throw him off the cliff. When the Roman soldiers came to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he, and everybody fell back. That's got to be divine protection, doesn't it? So this would fall into the category, maybe not the same exact thing that we see happening in Jesus' ministry, but certainly the category of of that which took place. And number five, he said, they in my name, they that believe in my name shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Well, that's certainly something that happened in Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? Turn with me over to Acts chapter 1. Let's look at it a little bit at the name of Jesus and the operation of the name of Jesus in the early days of the church. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has not yet been caught up into heaven. This is the time after um, his resurrection. There was a 47-day period between the uh, um, between the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost is 50 days. Jesus was raised after three days. He died just before the Passover. He was uh, in the heart of the earth for three days. So you got a 47-day window where Jesus appeared back and forth. Now, we don't know how long during that period, but somewhere during that 47-day period, Jesus would appear and disappear and show himself to the disciples. During the last time that this occurred, and apparently it was pretty close. We don't know how exactly exactly how close it was, but pretty close to to the Feast of Pentecost. So it was pretty close to that 50 days. Jesus was with the disciples, talking to them. And it says, um, uh, well, let's start reading in, uh, in verse 1. It says, The former treatise has, uh, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. The same one that wrote the Gospel of Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. 
It says, until the day, here's what Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. That's in that 47-day period. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. We've got record of just one or two. But it said that Jesus proved many different times in many different ways that he was raised from the dead. Well, what would that mean if it's not him appearing? That must have been an exciting couple of months. To whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. So maybe this happens seven days before the day of Pentecost. Being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus was here on the earth and stayed on the earth for 40 days or he came back and forth? I don't know. We know of a couple of times where he appeared and disappeared. So I'm inclined to think that he came and went rather than lived here for 40 days after he was raised from the dead. But either way, it was something that's a lot different than what I think most people picture. Can you imagine those 40 days? First thing, day three, Jesus upbraids them for their hardness of heart, gets them born again, and then starts showing them, this is what I was talking to you about all along. This is the whole reason that I came. Here's the the work of the Holy Ghost that I was speaking to you about. Here's what he's going to do. Here's how he's going to do it. Here's how you're going to do the works that I did and greater works. Wow. Maybe this was their Bible school experience. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I'd like to have tapes of that. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. I love the way John Osteen used to say this. He told the disciples, after he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, after he told them these signs will follow them that believe in my name, he said, now don't even think about leaving Jerusalem. Don't even think about having church until you're filled with the Holy Ghost. You've been commissioned on what to do. But you don't have the equipment yet to do it. Now, we know they were saved. We know they were born again because we see a change in them. The key to being saved is believe Jesus is raised from the dead and confess him as Lord. What do you think they're doing for 40 days? No question that they believe he's alive. He's eating with them. He's cooking for them. He's the one that cooked the fish by the seashore. That happened after he was raised from the dead. There's all kinds of stuff that's going on. They're saved. These guys are saved. Their lives have been changed. You see the fruit of salvation in their lives. They're filled with joy. You see the fruit of the Spirit beginning to take place in their lives in the, in the little glimpse we see during that period that the, that the Scriptures give us. They've been changed. But Jesus is saying to people that are saved, now you know what to do. The work is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but don't even think about starting it until you're filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, I love that. And the church argues today about whether or not it's important to be filled with the Spirit and speak with other tongues. Are you kidding? Jesus said, don't even think about trying to do the work without the Holy Ghost. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Okay, please understand, just because they're saved doesn't mean they're smart. They still don't get it. 
And they won't get it for a long time to come. So I guess it makes them kind of like us. We're learning too. And Jesus said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but here's what you need to know. Jesus always directed people back to what they needed to know. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Quit worrying about Israel. Quit worrying about Israel being out from under Roman rule. Quit worrying about the politics of the situation. Quit worrying about who's king, who's Caesar. Why? Because there are things that are more important. Well, what's more important than, than, than the political system of the day, Jesus? But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So apparently, the power of the Holy Ghost operating in the individual is more important to God than the, politi- the politics of the day. Hello? I see a lot of the church that's wasting time trying to get involved in politics now, trying to change things from a political standpoint, when the reality is we need to be focused on the glory of God in the last days. Now, don't get me wrong. We've got a responsibility. Anything we can change politically, I say let's do it. But i got to tell you something, folks, and this is just my personal opinion. I don't think there's anything that man's going to do to change the politics of the day. I think the only hope for the world is Jesus. I was telling people in, uh, in prayer school, I saw a, a headline on the news this afternoon just before I came to the prayer school that uh, there's some real nasty stuff, bad stuff that are taking place in Europe right now. The Eurozone Commission, which is basically the Germans, they're in charge of things. They're the only ones that have any money in Europe. Well, they've demanded that Cyprus seize 10% of everybody's assets. So everybody's, if you had a million dollars in the bank, you've now got $900,000. If you had $10 in the bank, you've now got nine. And as a result, it's a run on the banks. Everybody has found out what's going on. There's a big run on the banks. And the Deutsche Bank, the German, the, the number one bank in Germany, said the only hope for the Eurozone is Jesus. I didn't have a chance to check it out, so I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's good or not. I was telling the people in there. It sounds like if the if the banks are saying Jesus is our only hope, okay, that might be good. But what does that mean? Does that mean they're giving up and it's collapsing? I, I don't know. But that's what somebody from the Deutsche Bank is, is quoted as saying. The only hope for the Eurozone is Jesus. Well, folks, the only hope for the world is Jesus. You're not going to change things politically. In my opinion, it's too far gone to change it. But don't worry. It's happening just like the Bible says that it would. God's got everything under control. And one of the things the Bible says is he'll always take care of his people. Okay. So that's verse 8. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the Holy Ghost coming, being poured out upon all flesh. And Peter stands up and begins to preach and explain what's going on. He quotes from Joel's prophecy. Verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I want you to see the number one thing associated with the Holy Ghost is the supernatural. First thing Peter did in explaining the outpouring of the Holy Ghost is, is that he said it's about visions and dreams and prophecies. 
It's about supernatural revelation. And on my servants and on my handmaids will I pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. In other words, it's not just for a select few, it's for everybody. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. A lot of that stuff is at the end. A lot of that stuff is in the tribulation. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now, the great and notable day of the Lord is not the rapture. It's Jesus coming back in power with us coming with him. It's at the end of the tribulation period. But notice verse 21. This is part of Joel's prophecy, too. Most people don't realize this is part of what Joel prophesied. They get caught up in the blood and the fire and smoke. The visions and the dreams and all that other kind of stuff. But here's what it says. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, it's saying the real the important thing you need to realize about the whole outpouring of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter two is it opened the door for anybody to call on the name of Jesus for their lives to be redeemed. Acts chapter two was the opening for the world to call upon the name of Jesus. Now, what did they do with it? Peter continues to preach. Verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Uh, Jesus appeared to those disciples for 40 days to get Peter, at least, ready to preach this sermon. So now everybody's saying, okay, what do we do? You've told us about what's happening. You've told us about Jesus dying. You've told us about the, the nation of Jews that, that sent him to the cross. The Romans killed him. The Jews delivered him to the Romans. That doesn't mean that we should be against the Romans. That doesn't mean we should be against the Jews. If you were there, you'd have had a part in it too. Mankind delivered Jesus as a sacrifice. It's the way it was supposed to be. Some people get all bent out of shape. Well, you know, you're speaking against the Jews. No, we're not. They did exactly what God said they'd do. Doesn't mean they're bad people. It means they did what God said they'd do. It was necessary for the salvation of mankind. So now everybody's saying, okay, now, Peter, what do we do? Verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. This is the same thing that he's saying that Jesus said in Mark 16, 17. Or 16, 16. Yeah, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. He's talking about believing that Jesus has been raised from the dead and confessing with his Lord. That's how you're baptized in the name of Jesus. So he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins or unto the remission of sins. So he's got to be talking about salvation. How do you get saved? Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord. Romans 10, 8. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What is he talking about? Is he talking about speaking with other tongues? No. He's talking about the Holy Ghost that comes to us in salvation. He's talking about being born again. Now, does that mean they couldn't be filled with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues? doesn't mean that at all. He's just saying this is the part that works in salvation. It's God putting his spirit in you. Then there's a second experience called the baptism of the Holy Ghost where you speak with other tongues. Everybody can have that too. But they're asking, how do we escape this spiritual death and the judgment that's coming upon mankind? Get saved. God will give you a spirit. And notice what he says. He says it's all in the name of Jesus. Now, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 tells us about Peter and John going to the temple on a certain day. They passed through the beautiful gate. 
Verse 2, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. He's asking for money. And Peter, fasting his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he, the crippled man, gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. He thinks they're going to give him money. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. That means he's not carrying any money with him to prayer. I'm not here. I'm not going to give you money. That's not what I'm going to give you. But such as I have, give I thee. Folks, that's the Bible principle that always works. You can't give somebody something you don't have. Well, what did Peter have? He had what he had, what he gave him. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What did Peter have to give him if it wasn't silver and gold? He had faith in the name of Jesus. Just like Jesus said in John chapter 14. He that believeth on me or in my name, the works that I do shall he do also. What's Peter doing? He's showing that he believes in the name because he uses it. He calls and makes a demand, calls for, makes a requirement of heaven. He makes a demand on the name of Jesus. That demand is for this crippled man to walk. And what happens? He rises up, leaps and walks. Almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about, huh? He took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, folks, so much of the church talks nowadays about glorifying God in sickness and, and, and all this kind of stuff. You want to do an, uh, an interesting study. You'll find out that it was after people were healed. That's when they started praising God. Over and over and over again, when people get healed, that's when they start praising God. I don't know why the modern-day church turns that around. Well, we're just supposed to praise God when in the middle of our tragedy, in the midst of our suffering. Well, the only thing the Bible says we're ever supposed to suffer is persecution. They that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If we're not being persecuted, we need to look, check up on the way we're living. But outside of that, we're supposed to overcome and walk in victory in every other area, sickness included. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat at alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They saw this guy every day. Everybody passed by him. Some people gave him money. Other people ignored him. Everybody knows who this guy is. Now they see him well. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering. In other words, they're in the temple. Solomon's porch on the edge of the temple. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk? Now, folks, I love how the Holy Spirit is smart enough to know what people are going to say. Because so much of the modern-day church says that the apostles did these works because they were the apostles. And they had special power. They had a special place with God. And that when all the apostles passed away, that power to heal the sick and, 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 you know, heal the lepers and cleanse the lepers and to heal the cripples and all that. That was done away with. That's not the way God works today. Well, who would know better than the apostle, the apostles themselves? If they had some special power from God, then don't you think Jesus would have told them, now it's not always going to be this way, but I need you to do signs and wonders to show people. Who's going to know better than the ones that are supposed to have this special power or this special place from God? than Peter and the apostles. I would submit that nobody is going to know better. Certainly I would submit that no 
modern-day theologian is going to know more than Peter did about it. Because Peter was the one that God used in it. And notice what Peter said. When everybody is marveling because this guy is healed, Peter is saying, what are you guys marveling at? Now, that in itself shows that he considers this to be a common occurrence. Or at least that it's supposed to be a common occurrence. Otherwise, why would you say, why are you guys so excited because a crippled guy got healed? Are you serious? We don't see this stuff every day. But apparently he's expecting something that they don't know. Because he said, why look you so earnestly on us as by as if we, by our own power, or our own holiness, has made this man to walk? So what does Peter say the two things that it wasn't, that did not cause this man to be healed were? He said it wasn't special power they had. He said it wasn't special holiness they had. And those are the two things that the modern day church says was different about the apostles, that, that it was the reason that they got results that we can't get today. And Peter said, no. Those are the two things that it's not. It's not special power the apostles had. It's not special place with God or holiness that they had. In other words, you've got the same power they've got. You've got the same place of holiness they had. So why look you so earnestly on us? As if by our own power or our own holiness, we had made this man to walk. Well, if that wasn't it, Peter, what was it? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Now, please let me remind you what John 14, verse 12 and 13 says. Verily I say unto you, verse 12, verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me or in my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Verse 13, and whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, or demand, in my name that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Let me read again verse 13 in Acts chapter 3. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Why? Because they put a demand on the name of Jesus. Not because of special power, not because of special holiness, but because they did what Jesus said in John 14, 13. They put a demand on the name of Jesus on the behalf of this crippled man, and the crippled man was healed. And the end result is God glorified his son Jesus. Well, what glorified Jesus? The man's healing. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied, in, in, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Sounds like he's cutting them to shreds. And he is. But he's not going to leave them there. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses, and his name. If it wasn't special power on the part of the apostles, if it wasn't special holiness, what was it? It's G, uh, What's his name? Peter says, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And his name, through faith in his name. Just like Jesus said in John 14 when he told Peter and the other disciples at the Last Supper how it was going to work. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me and in my name, the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. 
And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, folks, you've got to have help to misunderstand this. But don't worry, there are plenty of preachers that will help you. How could it be clearer? And his name through faith in his name. And his name through faith in his name. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I'm not sure if I really believe. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I'm not sure if I have faith. Listen, forget all that stuff. That's just the devil speaking to your mind. Just believe and act. What if Peter stopped and looked at the crippled guy and said, look upon us, and then thought, what if this doesn't work? Oh, never mind. That's where a lot of Christians would have been. But what did Peter do? Peter simply acted on what Jesus said. Now, I don't have any doubt that this was special faith in operation. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. But even saying that, Special faith works the same as saving faith, which works the same as, as healing faith, which works the same as faith in every other area. Faith on in any measure works the same way. You believe in your heart and you say with your mouth. So even if it is special faith in operation, he still had faith. And you can too. And his name through faith in his name. My intent, before I preach too long about other stuff, was to go through the first five or six chapters of the book of Acts. Maybe we'll do that next week. And show you how many times the Bible talks about the use of the name of Jesus. And what miraculous results occurred. And how the people used the name. Now, if we stop right here, and, and, and we're going to have to tonight. But I want to let me just throw something out and I'll prove it next week. We'll make this a part one and part two. Tonight's faith in the name of Jesus, part one. Next week will be faith in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts. How about that? Okay, Paul, I've already given you a title. Write that down. (laughs) It's so easy for us to take this and say, all right, well, here's how Peter did it. I mean, how are we going to know to use it if we don't follow the example that the Bible gives us? That makes sense, right? Well, we see this example, and we think this may be the only one. And so we use this as the prime example, so we think, all right, here's what Peter did. Peter saw a crippled guy, and and for whatever reason, prompting of the Holy Ghost, special faith in operation, manifestation of the Holy Ghost, whatever, maybe he had a gift in this area. If you look through the book of Acts, you'll find out that almost everybody that was healed in Peter's ministry were crippled or or something was wrong with their legs. Maybe he had a, a gift of healing in the area of cripples. That's possible. Don't know. But it doesn't matter. But what we do is we take this and we see Peter saying, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And we think that the name of Jesus is some special magic ritualistic talisman type thing that if you say it just right with the right feeling inside, then you'll get results. But if you don't use it right, or if you don't have the right kind of feeling, or whatever going on when you use it, you don't get the results. And folks, you're going to find out that the use of the name of Jesus was not like this for the most part. You'll find out that most of the people aren't standing up and saying, in the name of Jesus, do something or be something. You'll find out that the name of Jesus was something that they took as a natural byproduct of being believers. It says that they preached the name of Jesus, not that they singled out the use of the name of Jesus as some kind of magic rabbit's foot. Yet so much of the church thinks the name of Jesus is this lucky charm type thing. And it's not. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. You are in Christ. You're gonna, 
there are times where they did, where the, the, where Paul, who wasn't part of the original 12, did some miraculous things and never even used the name of Jesus. Well, why did it work then? How could it possibly work? Because he's putting a demand on the ministry that God gave him because he's ministering in the name of Jesus. Now, the reason that's important, folks, is because you should be living in the name of Jesus. Paul said, in everything you do, whatsoever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. You should be eating in the name of Jesus. You should be working in the name of Jesus. You should be going to sleep in the name of Jesus. You should be driving your car in the name of Jesus. The point is very simply this. Instead of being ritualistic about this special phrase, in the name of Jesus, we need to realize that Jesus lives in us, and so whatever we do in line with what the Bible says is God's will and plan and purpose is in the name of Jesus. Paul, at the beginning of Paul's ministry, I'll just give you this as a, as a, a, a starter for next week. The beginning of Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 13. One of the first places he gets, he finds that there is a certain Jew that tries to hinder the ministry, the gospel of Jesus being delivered to the local governor or magistrate or whatever his position was. And Paul turns to the guy and says that a mist and a darkness shall come upon him and never uses the name of Jesus. And it happens just the way he says. Somebody has to lead this guy out around the house uh, by the hand. A darkness comes about upon this guy for a period of time. It wasn't sickness. It wasn't disease. God doesn't use sickness and disease. But there was a darkness that came around this guy, and Paul didn't even use the name of Jesus for it to happen. How did he make that work? He couldn't have made that work if it works the way that so much of the church world thinks. Because there's this special phrase, and if you don't use that special phrase, I mean, every time we pray, we have to say, in the name of Jesus. Like, none of the rest of it mattered unless we say in the name of Jesus. Folks, it's not a lucky charm. It's the life of God that dwells in us. And he's in there all the time. You don't activate him by using the special words. You activate him by acting in line with what the word says. Amen? How could it be clearer? He that believeth in my name, the works that I do, shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. I, I truly believe this, folks, and I don't even know what I'm saying here. I don't even know what I mean by what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying, but I don't know what I mean by it. I believe the greater works are going to be manifest in the last days of the church. And I don't know what they'll be. But I think there will be some things that will happen, and we'll look and we'll say, wow, that had to be a greater work that Jesus was talking about. I don't think it can be greater in quality. How can you get greater in quality than what Jesus did? He raised the dead. I certainly believe that it will be greater in quantity because the, the, the Bible says the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Do you realize that only a small part of the earth was aware of the, the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus did when he was here? Very small portion of the earth. There were people that, that Paul went to in Ephesus, that didn't even know about Jesus, didn't know Jesus had come and gone. They had been baptized under John's baptism, and John just said, there's one coming after me. They didn't even know Jesus had come to the earth. Jesus had come, spent three years in his ministry, doing the signs and wonders and miracles, died on the cross, been raised from the dead, and they didn't even hear about it. The last thing they heard was John said, somebody's coming. But the Bible says, 
in the last days, I believe this is the last day glory, the greater glory of the last day church, that the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of his glory. If that's literal, and there's no reason for us to think that it's not, think about what that means. That means every corner of the earth will be aware of the move of God in the last days. Not one land will be left out. People talk about the people groups all over the world, the 1040 window and all the people groups that haven't been reached. Won't be one then. Every group of people, every land, every continent, every place will be aware, will be knowledgeable of the glory of God on the earth. That excites me. Doesn't it you? The Bible says the glory of God shall cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Now, we don't usually think in those terms, waters covering seas. We think of the sea as water. We think of water as water. But it's talking about the waters covering the seas. What does that mean? That's an Old Testament term that means deep. And it says the glory of God shall cover the earth like deep waters. You know, there are places in the, in the oceans that they don't know how deep it is. They can't measure it. I like to think about that when I think about that verse. We're not talking about a sprinkling. We're not talking about a little shower. It may start as a shower, but it'll end up as a flood. And the glory of the latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord. And in this place I will give peace. I truly believe that the world is going to be in such a mess that the, that, that people are going to be running to the church because they see that's the only place where there is peace. It's the only place where there is power. That it's the only place that there is stability. I truly believe that. And, and maybe not all of the church will be there. That's one reason why I think God's got to wake up the church before he has the great evangelism, the great wave of evangelism. I talk about this stuff in prayer school, so if you're, if you're part of prayer school, then, then forgive me for a minute while I repeat myself. But we usually think of revival as evangelism, and it's not. Revival is the awakening of the church. A revival. They were once vived, and now they need to be revived. If that's a word, I don't know. But it's awakening those in the church that have gone to sleep. That's what revival is. Now, revival, the awakening of the church, always brings about a wave of evangelism. Because when the church wakes up, then they go do what the Bible says to do, which is go into all the world and preach the gospel. So I see it as two pieces, two parts. I see God waking the church up, and I see the church then moving out in evangelism. I think the two of those go together in the last day glory. Now, I could be way wrong on that, and that's okay. Catch me in heaven and say, Pastor Mike, you were wrong. I won't care. Won't matter. Because the, the bottom line is it gets me praying about the right things either way. I pray for the church to be awakened and revived. And I pray, I pray for evan- the wave of evangelism to sweep people into the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says Jesus is waiting for, the precious fruit of the earth. I wonder if that's going to have anything to do with the use of his name. You think? He said that's the only way we can do the works that he did. Well, the works that he did is what's going to bring about the knowledge of the glory of God in the earth. And he said that only comes by putting a demand on his name. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to do something this week. 
I want to challenge you to think about that everything you're doing, you're doing in the name of Jesus. Don't just let it be, well, this is my routine. If it is your routine, make your routine in the name of Jesus. Because that's what Paul said to do. He said, everything you do, do it in the name of Jesus. So whatever work you're involved in, work in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do where your family is concerned, or your loved ones, or your friends, do it in the name of Jesus. Be conscious of the name of Jesus this week and see what a difference it makes in your week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, for the precious name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I challenge you to challenge us this week to find places to use your name. Find places and ways and situations where we can exercise faith in your name. Challenge us during this week, Holy Spirit, to step out and use the name of Jesus without fear of failure or rejection or any other thing, but to put a demand on that which Jesus said was ours. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you always do that which you promised, that when we put a demand on the name of Jesus, Whatever it is, you'll do it and make good on your word. We love you, Father. Thank you so much for equipping us with the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost and the power in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.